like to begin by pointing out that we finally have the uh, results of the five-year project on selecting the 150 highly recommended books that students should read or at least be familiar with before they graduate. Uh, and there are other posters that people can pick up on your way out. Uh, we're very glad to have Steve Ennis with us. Uh, as the director of the Harry Ransom Center, he occupies in the opinion of many of us, the most important job at the University of Texas. Uh, he speaks in a long line of uh, Irish topics that we have had. I think it helps to have George Bernard Shaw making sure that you're accurately uh, presenting the facts. We go all the way back, of course, to mention only a few uh, Oscar Wilde. At one time, we had Michael Yates, who was the former chairman of the Irish Senate and the only son of the poet. Uh, Sir David Williams, who was the vice chancellor of Cambridge University, speaking on the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, last week, Kevin Kenny and De Valera. Uh, and we have Larry Graham, who is also an expert on Northern Ireland. Uh, so Steve, we're very glad that to have the opportunity uh, to hear about Seamus Haney and the uh, the Belfast Poets. All right. Thank you, Roger. I want to thank Roger for that, for inviting me to speak to the British Studies group. Uh, I've enjoyed these, these afternoon lectures and uh, delighted to be with you today. Good to see British Studies regulars, uh, colleagues from the English Department and from the Ransom Center as well. Um, a few comments about this talk before I, before I get underway. Um, I'm interested in where poetry comes from, and uh, not only the individual experience and the individual poet's distinctive vision, but also uh, the social conditions and the networks that enable uh, poetry to come into being. Uh, and it's really uh, that latter topic, um, the social world that enabled what we now refer to as the Ulster Renaissance that began quite precisely in 1963 in Belfast. It's those networks and those relationships that I'll be talking about today. Um, there, there are really two things that you should know before I begin. And one of them is uh, the key role um, that a, an academic and aspiring poet named Philip Hobsbawm played in this, this series of events that I'll be referring to. Uh, Hobsbawm uh, was for many years based in, in London, and he organized at that time in London something that was called, um, with a, a very bland title, simply The Group. Um, th this, was, this was before um, creative writing programs had been established in America or in the UK. Um, and Hobsbawm convened uh, in London from the mid-1950s up until he left in 59, uh, the group, to hear one another's new poems, to comment on them, to provide what he called practical criticism about them. Hobsbawm left in 59, and the group ends up being managed by um, Edward Lucy Smith, Teddy Lucy Smith, whose papers we, we hold here at the Ransom Center. And Hobsbawm briefly took an appointment at Sheffield, where he remained for about three years, 
before taking a post at Queen's University in Belfast. And that's where I want to take up the story, his arrival in 1963. Um, in that year, uh, Hobsbawm and his successor at the London Group co-edited uh, this anthology, uh, a book that's long since been forgotten, which you'll hear some reasons why it's been forgotten. But they co-edited this anthology that came out that, that year. When Philip Hobsbawm and Edward Lucy Smith co-edited an anthology of work by group poets in 1963, they unwittingly set themselves up as targets of attack. Among the earliest reviewers of a group anthology was one by Julian S Simmons in The Spectator. And while respectful of a number of the individual poems, uh, Simmons introduced a note of disapproval that would be echoed by many other subsequent reviewers. He wrote, um, poetry is an individual art before posing the question, what can be gained by a cooperative view of poems. In other words, in other words, the publication of a group anthology did two things. It defined this community of poets who came together to discuss one another's work. It established an identity as a group, and it also provided a basis for criticizing them. Nothing provoked reviewers more than the notion that there was among the poets a common group aesthetic. In the spring of 1963, uh, Seamus Heaney was teaching at St. Joseph's Training College in Belfast when he wrote a review of this group anthology. It was his very first uh, book review, uh, one that I would add escaped the notice of his bibliographer. And it was published in an obscure student publication in Belfast called Interest. Unlike uh, some of the hostile reviews being directed at the anthology, the 24-year-old Heaney was appreciative of the idea of a writer's group. He noted the way the group operated, that poems would be submitted to Hobsbawm or his successor, Lucy Smith, that they, a selection would be made, they would be run off on a mimeograph machine, they would be sent to all of the group members to read and study before coming to the session so that the, those attending had some uh, familiarity with the work they were hearing and could respond um, more meaningfully about the poems. Uh, Heaney was appreciative of the idea of such a group. He, he noted the effective way it operated, uh, informing, uh, in, uh, encouraging informed responses to the work. Yet he too noted, but in his case without any explicit criticism, the way the group's method contributed to similarities among the, the poems. Quoting Heaney, not surprisingly, the poetic process represented by the group writers is empirical. All the poems begin with a remembered or imagined account of incident or character. And this concrete situation resolves itself into an attitude or statement about some central problem of living, about love, about marriage, belief, war, or punishment. The poem, Heaney continued, in a statement that could well stand as a coda 
for his own early verse, acts as a lens which focuses intelligence on personal experience and burnishes it into public art. Heaney likened uh, the social conditions out of which the group poems were produced to that of the 18th century coffee house, and he singled out for particular praise the poems of Edward Lucy Smith, who he called the most authoritative voice in the collection. Hobsbawm, who you see here, had recently arrived in Belfast to take up a teaching position at Queen's, and he sent a copy of Heaney's review to his co-editor, Lucy Smith, in London, with whom he remained in regular communication. And here you see Lucy Smith. Quoting from that letter, here's what seems to me a very bright review in one of Queen's literary magazines. It's true, it doesn't reach quite so wide an audience as The Spectator, but this is a reaction from the rising generation, not from the old fuddy-duddies of yesteryear, and therefore very heartening, I think. Heaney had quoted in that review Hobsbawm's call for the creation of writing groups up and down the country, but Heaney concluded the review with a note of skepticism writing, I suppose it's vain to expect that Belfast will rally to his call. Hobsbawm would have taken note of two poems also in that same issue of interest, two poems by Heaney, one called Essences, the other Welfare State. The latter, a, a reflection on the passing of rural traditions that, that takes as a subject an aging generation of peat diggers, uh, not unlike the grandfather Heaney would later immortalize in his celebrated poem, Digging. Almost four months later, something surprising happened, and that is uh, Heaney republished the same review, something that doesn't happen often. He republished the same review in a more widely distributed publication called Hibernia, but this time he introduced some changes into the review. What had happened is that between the first review and the second, Heaney and Hobsbawm had met. And following that meeting, Heaney uh, felt compelled to reconsider some of his earlier statements. Years later, Hobsbawm would share his memory of that first meeting. Uh, quoting Hobsbawm, he seemed incredibly pleased to be noticed, to be taken up and spoken to. He kept grinning, a trait I didn't understand at the time, but I think it was pleasure at being recognized. And here you see a photo taken just two years after that meeting of a grinning Seamus Heaney with some of the school-age children surrounding him. Following um, that first meeting, Heaney rewrote his review of a group anthology, silently dropping the words of praise for Lucy Smith, and instead singling out for attention one of Hobsbawm's poems, making a substitution between the co-editors. Hobsbawm's poem has the unfortunate title, Journey Round the Inside of My Mouth, and refers to recent dental work he's been <laughs> undertaking. Uh, as I say, the, uh, well, I, I will not read the poem. Uh, the substitution was a direct response, though, to Al Alvarez's recent attack in The Observer, where Alvarez had charged that the group poets as a whole shared a fixation on nastiness, on torture, wounding, defecation, and rotting teeth. 
More significant than this shuffling of poets, however, was Heaney's newfound enthusiasm for writing groups across Ireland. One can only hope, he wrote in the second version of this review, that Hobsbawm's suggestion is taken up. If there were a group in Belfast, Dublin, Cork, and Galway, our young poets would find it easier to meet an audience. Beginners would have a benefit of criticism from the established, and above all, interest should increase. Hobsbawm had in fact already shared with Lucy Smith that he intended to begin a writing group in Belfast like the one he had run in London. And when he got around to convening that group of community-based writers and aspiring writers, Heaney was among the very first that he invited. While these events were transpiring in Ireland, other reviewers of the anthology were taking aim at the London group. Uh, Ian Hamilton, who was then editor of the little magazine, The Review, was particularly harsh in his condemnation. The trouble with the most distinctive poems in a group anthology, he wrote, is that they seem to have been composed in frigid decoration of a formula interpretation of human experience. We live in violent times, they seem to say, and therefore this violence must be reflected in our verse. The poet with his task so clearly defined sits back, gathers violent images, and joins a discussion group to compete with other poets for gruesome effects. Hamilton singled out Peter Porter's poem, Annotations of Auschwitz and George Macbeth's report to the director as reflective of what he called a death camp theme. Sylvia Plath had taken her life only a few months before, and the gruesome effects of poetry seemed painfully clear to all. Yet more than a particular effect, Hamilton was objecting to the group method itself. The charge was that the group poets had adopted a group aesthetic. The very manner of the poem's composition led to a sameness in the themes and effects of the work. Lucy Smith, in a moment of some despondency, wrote to his co-editor, writing, I begin to see that we will both be very many years in living this book down. So it was in this context, while uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of Hamilton's review, and while uh, the two co-editors were besieged from similar attacks from other quarters, that Hobsbawm ironically sets out and convenes uh, and gathers likely participants for a Belfast group to begin meeting at his and his wife's home at the start of Queen's autumn term. In addition to Heaney, among those he invited was a Belfast-based playwright and sometimes poet named Stuart Parker, who was at the time studying for his um, MA. He invited a local poet and songwriter, James Simmons, and a young civil servant named Joan Watton, whom he'd met when she attended one of his adult education classes. Several uh, Queen's colleagues were early participants, among them the Catalan language scholar Arthur Ter Terry and the George Eliot scholar W.J. Harvey, chair of the English department at the time. Joan Watton um, has recorded her response to Hobsbawm's overture and invitation. She was flattered by, quote, the beautiful spontaneous letter she received. And in her reply, she noted how her own writing had been hampered by a lack of a supportive community. Uh, in the past, she wrote, I had given my poems to several people, 
only to be rewarded with uh, an incoherent expression and comment such as very nice, with the result that I was beginning to write less. I'd, I'd love to join your writing group, she wrote, and I hope I can fulfill your expectations. Hobsbawm asked Stuart Parker uh, to launch the new Belfast group at its first meeting in October. And Simmons later wrote that the evening hadn't been bad, that a young woman, this would have been Joan Watton, was marvelous. Quoting Simmons, she didn't say a word during the only meeting I've been at, but Hobsbawm issues cyclostyled copies of one poet's work for the next week's session, and it was hers, very stark and strong and wise. Simmons was about to travel to Nigeria, where he uh, was going to spend the coming year, but he attended the first meetings of the group regularly, and he later reported that he found them very stimulating after much lack of contact with, with poets. He was particularly pleased when on the 19th of November it came his own turn to read, and Hobsbawm selected several of his most recent poems. Quite a fill-up to my confidence, he wrote a close friend. Seamus Heaney's uh, first group sheet included one of his most personal early poems, uh, Midterm Break, about the tragic death of his younger brother when his brother was only four years old. While the date of that group meeting went unrecorded, it would have been Michaelmas term in the autumn of 1963 before Simmons had left for Nigeria. Heaney had only recently begun submitting his work to local publications and the Belfast Telegraph, um, and a few of these had begun appearing, including midterm break in the Kilkenny magazine that spring. And while the poem um, would be eventually collected as first presented in its group sheet, um, other poems from that first group, uh, group sheet would often undergo a quite significant revision, as did a poem called Turkey's Observed, or another early poem, O Brave New Bull, which would be retitled um, and undergo some revision before appearing in Heaney's second collection, Door into the Dark. A number of features of Heaney's mature work were apparent from the very beginning. Um, many of the poems draw upon farming practices, um, upon rural speech and customs that Heaney had witnessed and experienced in his youth. And three of the poems from that first group sheet, O Brave New Bull, Midterm Break, and Turkeys Observed, introduce a first person, I, who, who registers experience and is in fact the real subject of these early poems. Let me just share this poem with you. <clears throat> I sat all morning in the college sick bay, counting bells, knelling classes to a close. At two o'clock, our neighbors drove me home. In the porch, I met my father crying. He had always taken funerals in his stride. And big Jim Evans saying it was a hard blow. The baby cooed and laughed and rocked the, the pram when I came in, and I was embarrassed by old men standing up to shake my hand and tell me they were sorry for my trouble. Whispers informed strangers I was the eldest away at school as my mother held my hand in hers and coughed out angry tearless sighs. At 10 o'clock, the ambulance arrived with the corpse staunched and bandaged by the nurses. Next morning, I went in, 
up into the room. Snowdrops and candles soothed the bedside. I saw him for the first time in six weeks, paler now, wearing a poppy bruise on his left temple. He lay in the four-foot box as in his cot, no gaudy scars, the bumper knocked him clear, a four-foot box, a foot for every year. While few contemporary accounts survive of participants' responses to these group sessions, Norman Buller was working in the Careers Advisory Service at Queens in 63 and also attending group meetings regularly. He was impressed enough by Heaney's reading of his poems to write Hobsbawm and say so, quoting him, this man Heaney, he's got something. What he offers actually interests me and makes me want to read more. Near the end of the autumn term, Heaney presented a second selection of poems, an, an advancement of learning had been published in the Irish Times some months before, and Fisher would appear there in February. The group sheet also included a poem called Docker, as well as the uncollected poems, Amputation, National Trust, and A Cistercian Speaks. Much has been made in hindsight of the non-sectarian makeup of the Belfast group, but the reality of these societal tensions and divisions outside the Belfast group were acutely familiar to all its participants, and Heaney chose to address them directly, in particular in his portrait of a Protestant dock worker. And just a portion of this poem from the second stanza uh, in this descriptive poem describing the Protestant dock worker, that fist would drop a hammer on a Catholic, oh yes, that kind of thing could start again. And then skipping down into the third stanza, uh, a, a depiction of something of the staunchness of this brand of, of um, strict Protestantism that dominated and left, uh, left its influence over the whole city. God is a foreman with certain definite views who orders life in shifts of work and leisure. A factory horn will blare the resurrection. The Belfast group offered a safe space for these kinds of divisions to be discussed, and Hobsbawm, who was Jewish, uh, broadened the frame of reference even further. Uh, Joan Watton uh, opened the new term in January, and she was followed the next week by James Simmons, who brought along, in a very uncharacteristic fashion for group meetings, brought along his guitar and sang to the selection of his, song, uh, his poems. The Belfast group was not yet attracting the kind of criticism that had been directed at the London group, though the participants were beginning uh, to share something of a group identity around Belfast. In only a few months, Hobsbawm had in fact su succeeded in uh, identifying a group of young and talented Belfast writers. He had put in place a structure for them to share their new work, and he had cr created, as Heaney would later write, uh, an open house for poetry. At the close of the term, before leaving for London for the summer, Hobsbawm posted his friend and fellow poet Martin Bell a selection of what he thought were the best spring group sheets, writing, I've kept it down to the people I really feel have something, Heaney, Parker, and Watton, and two story writers, McClaverty and Bond. 
Following that summer break, uh, Hobsbawm reported, quote, the group here got off to a thunderous start at the beginning of term. He reported being inundated with, with poems, stories, and plays, and said that he had quite enough to keep me going right through this term and halfway through the next. There had been changes to the Belfast group over the summer. Stuart Parker had married and left for a teaching post in America, and Joan Watton, whom Hobsbawm thought one of the most promising participants, had moved to, to London. There were new additions to the group as well. Harry Chambers had arrived in Belfast for a teaching post at Strand Millis College, and he too began attending Hobsbawm, who was always the networker, uh, the connective tissue of this community, invited John Boyd, a talks producer for BBC Northern Ireland, to attend meetings, uh, which he did. Uh, the poet uh, Michael Longley, um, one, of Ireland, one of Ireland's finest uh, contemporary poets, Michael Longley had been living in London and had uh, recently arrived in Belfast having followed his future wife, Edna Broderick, to the city, uh, where she had taken a teaching post at Queens. Longley, when he reflected back on um, group meetings, he would be dismissive and say, I simply followed Edna to group meetings. But in fact, um, Michael Longley was already familiar with Hobsbawm's poetry and had uh, reviewed Hobsbawm's previous collection for the Irish Times in April. He's, in, years, in subsequent years, Michael Longley would, uh, talking about this history, would express some ambivalence about his participation in the group. And he had good reason to be ambivalent uh, because of that review he had written of Hobsbawm's work. Um, in that review, he had called Hobsbawm a less accomplished Philip Larkin, uh, <laughs> noting he shared something of Larkin's interest in feelings of inadequacy. Um, <laughs> little wonder then if Longley attended his first group meeting in Hobbs Hobsbawm's home somewhat reluctantly. While the group was resuming in Belfast, a familiar debate erupted again in the pages of The Spectator, where uh, when Elizabeth Jennings made a passing reference to a group anthology, noting that the volume has nothing of the power or strength of a real literary manifesto. It was an aside, uh, cast-off line, really, in a piece largely focused on the movement poets, but it nevertheless led to a month-long row in the letters column as one letter writer after another condemned the London group or came to its defense. Hobsbawm, writing from Belfast, was the first to step forward, pointing out matter-of-factly that the group members shared no doctrine and that the group could more usefully be seen as a forum for practical criticism. It was by now his standard response to criticism of the London group or its more recent Belfast offshoot. Hobsbawm had invited uh, Seamus Heaney to read at the upcoming group meeting that would coincide with the Belfast Festival, which was an annual arts festival in the city. And in advance of that, Heaney gave Hobsbawm a sheaf of poems, a substantial sheaf of poems, uh, for Hobsbawm to make a selection for the group sheet. Hobsbawm, who was still in touch with Lucy Smith, posted um, a letter about this, in his words, most stupendous collection of poems. 
It was, he noted, almost enough for a book and a very high quality throughout. It took me a considerable amount of time to select the poems for the batch. As it is, I've allowed Heaney seven poems, one over the statutory number, which I'm sure you, you Lucy Smith, will agree is a dangerous precedent. Still, I feel he deserves it, and I think this will be his Annus Mirabilis. Unknown to Hobsbawm, Heaney had in fact already submitted that group of poems to the Irish-based Dolman Press in, in Dublin, and he was waiting word on its acceptance. Uh, the Dublin-based press was making a, a good name for itself as a poetry publisher. Thomas Kinsel, as another September, had been selected as a Poetry Book Society choice, and Austin Clark's later poems had received a, a Poetry Society recommendation. Recently, a new distribution agreement with Oxford University Press promised wider sales of Dolman titles outside of Ireland, and Miller was known to produce uh, handsome, well-made books. It was, in other words, a logical direction for Heaney to turn. But unaware that the manuscript was already under consideration by Dolman, Hobsbawm and Lucy Smith were both, both considering publishers that they could approach on Heaney's behalf. As to Heaney, presumably when he gets a collection together, you'll recommend him to Macmillan, Lucy Smith wrote Hobsbawm. If you have no luck there, I'll try Oxford. In the end, the seven poems Hobsbawm chose from Heaney's manuscript included well-known poems like Digging and Death of a Naturalist, uh, Writer and Teacher, Young Bachelor, Scaffolding. Three of the poems had already been accepted for publication in that student publication interest, and four of them would eventually be collected in Death of a Naturalist, his first, his first collection. Hobsbawm mailed uh, Lucy Smith the group sheet uh, with these seven poems um, in advance of Lucy Smith's visit for the Belfast Festival. And under the direction of the festival organizer, Michael Emerson, Festival 64 was a, a very ambitious program of exhibitions and concerts and film screenings and performances. The midday lectures, which were a feature of the festival, included um, Anthony Burgess speaking on Finnegan's Wake and Patrick Cavanaugh on The Poet's Life. At Hobsbawm's suggestion, uh, poets, the, the poet Martin Bell and uh, Lucy Smith had been invited from London, and Hobsbawm, writing to Bell of the pr preparations, reported that the entire place is being turned upside down. Lucy Smith stayed with Philip and his wife Hannah when he visited Belfast, and it was during this visit that he and Heaney met for the first time at a dinner party at the Hobsbawm's Fitzwilliam Street house. Lucy Smith had agreed to speak on modern poetry, a murderous art, the title phrase a reference to Al Alvarez's description of the final poems of Sylvia Plath. Following that lecture, a group of friends um, gathered at a nearby pub, and it was there that Lucy Smith was shown a copy of the just-published student publication interest featuring three of Heaney's workshop poems. Heaney was scheduled to read at the group meeting the next night, but Lucy Smith had to return to London and missed that session. Looking back on the his, this history, though, from a distance of some years, 
The poet Michael Longley would recall that it was only the second or third group meeting that he, Longley, had attended. Other than Longley's brief mention, no record survives of that group discussion. However, Hobsbawm did make several alterations to Heaney's poem, Writer and Teacher, on his copy of the group sheet, changes that Heaney would adopt when the poem was published in the Irish Times a couple of months later. That three stanza poem offers a lesson in how to live and how to write. It celebrates in characteristic Heaney fashion, simple virtues of humility and honesty and the lessons that, quote, the humble master has to teach his pupils in how to look with love and how to celebrate each joy they meet. Hobsbawm's copy of Heaney's group sheet reveals his revision of Heaney's lines and his breaking of the pattern of rhyme at the start of the third stanza. Heaney had written a week's a chapter in the tale where 30 boys drive towards the gale of living. Hobsbawm recast the lines more prosaically, a week's a chapter in the story where 30 boys imperceptibly grow into men. It's a good example of what Longley would later refer to as Hobsbawm's preference for unrhetorical utterance. Heaney, uh, no doubt, had in mind in this poem, writer and teacher, his own young pupils uh, and his own vocational dilemma at the time, that is, how to fuse his roles as both writer, creative writer, and as, as teacher. But Hobsbawm would certainly have read into the poem something of his, Hobsbawm's own mentoring uh, relationship with the younger group members. The poem concludes, the pupils are his masterpiece. Um, the pupils are his masterpiece. Back in London, um, Lucy Smith wrote Hobsbawm uh, to share good news. I had a call from Francis Hope just now indicating that my approach to the new statesman on behalf of Heaney has paid off. The only trouble is I believe Heaney's already printed the very poems they want to use in that little magazine I was shown in the pub on Monday night. Lucy Smith did not have Heaney's address, so Carl Miller, who was literary editor of the New Statesman at the time, wrote um, to Heaney, care of Hobsbawm. Dear Mr. Heaney, Edward Lucy Smith has shown me poems by you, and I'm anxious to publish, if possible, some, in particular, digging. I realize that you may be committed elsewhere, but I hope not, and I would be very glad if you would let me know as soon as you can what the position is. Just as the attacks on the London group in the letters column of The Spectator were beginning to subside, uh, three of Heaney's workshop poems appeared in the de December 4th New Statesman. Digging was given pride of place, uh, centered on the page, taking up the bulk of, of that large format magazine, and squeezed below it two shorter poems, Storm on the Island and Scaffolding. It was a generous allocation of space, and it marked, for the first time, Heaney's introduction to London's wider literary community. Hobsbawm noted with some envy, quote, even Ted Hughes never got three poems in one issue. Digging uh, was a fitting debut. Uh, one of Heaney's most beloved poems, it pays tribute to and memorializes the poet's father and grandfather, 
while at the same time signaling his own break from those familial and rural traditions. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground, my father digging. I look down till a straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up 20 years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the log, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's Bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rest. I'll dig with it. Something of the father's uh, craft of work well done um, persist in the new lives the poem suggests and will guide the poet in his new work. Its companion poem that appeared on the same page, Scaffolding, it too evokes the inherent uh, dignity of the laborer's work and as in digging draws from those associations lessons for the present day. We may let the scaffolds fall, Heaney writes in that poem, confident that we have built our wall. While Heaney's stock was rising, Lucy Smith continued to be preoccupied with the hostility still being directed at himself, Hobsbawm, and the London group more broadly. And a new attack uh, came when Ian Hamilton reviewed Lucy Smith's most recent collection that came out that same month. Hamilton called Lucy Smith a publicist. He was working at the Notley Advertising Agency at the time. But Hamilton also used the occasion to take a swipe at the London group more broadly. Reading Lucy Smith's poems, he wrote, one is persistently troubled by the vision of one of those grindingly solemn seminars. Individual poetic vision, in other words, had been replaced, he suggested, by a kind of corporate thought, epitomized in his words by the BBC, the Arts Council Poetry Panel, and the Lockwood Memorial Library, a reference to the fact that SUNY Buffalo was actively buying poets' papers at that time. <laughs> Lucy Smith was stung by this latest assault, and as he did at such times, he shared his frustration with Hobsbawm. I'm in fact um, becoming very concerned about this aspect of the whole controversy about the group. The way in which it seems to prejudice the poet's chances of getting anything like an unbiased review. I think it's a matter which we will have to be, excuse me, a matter which will have to be looked at squarely. I mean whether the group, by becoming such a storm center, has lost its usefulness or whether the disadvantages it offers to those who come now outweigh the advantages. 
Lucy Smith canceled the regularly scheduled London group meeting later that week and instead wrote to the members of the group asking them to consider two questions. In view of the fact that the group has now become an extremely heated public issue, has its usefulness come to an end? Alternatively, uh, if its usefulness has not come to an end, do the disadvantages of continuing outweigh the advantages? He wrote, as I see it, the crux of the matter is that a known association with the group now makes it very difficult for a poet to receive an unprejudiced reception from reviewers. Those poets, already labeled as group poets, in my view a meaningless term, either through their inclusion in a group anthology or for other reasons, will probably still find their work discussed in a group context instead of entirely on its own merits. Hobsbawm uh, felt that his friend had shown too much of his own feelings uh, in his letter and, she, and he should not have expressed his private doubts uh, so publicly. Uh, my own feeling, he wrote, is that you should have trained a successor to take over the group uh, in the last couple of years. He was concerned that the group had become a distraction to his friend's own writing and emphasized the worry is that your own poetry might suffer as a consequence. And it was in this context of these attacks on the London group that Hobsbawm suggested his friend take a break from the chairmanship and name a successor, adding, I do this more or less automatically. My successor here, and quite possibly in the Queen's English Department, will be Seamus Heaney. Thank you all very much.